Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Every leader in an organization should make the set of decisions that only they can make and then delegate all the other ones. And the only way that you can do that is if everyone is empowered to make the right decisions with the right context and you have invested ahead of time and trained the neural net of the organization to make those appropriate decisions well. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. This episode features an interview with Jason Warner, GitHub's chief technology officer. At GitHub, 85% of their 704 engineers work remotely. Prior to GitHub, Jason was the vice president of engineering at Heroku and Canonical, both of which are remote-first companies. He's also a member of the advisory board of Innovate Ohio, where he reports to the lieutenant governor advising policy decisions to make Ohio the most innovative state in the country in the next five years. Jason's passionate about building technologies that bring people together, and he shares incredible wisdom with us about how to effectively build trust and communicate, plus tons of other powerful remote leadership and management principles that he's applied throughout his entire career. Enjoy this episode with Jason Warner. The first question I have is a lot of engineering leaders, when they start to manage remote teams, they often observe new challenges in terms of communication, trust building, and engagement. But do you think those challenges are unique to remote teams? Uh, no, I don't think that they're necessarily unique to remote teams, but what I think they are is highlighted or exacerbated in remote teams. So, you know, I have a thing when I talk about remote versus co-located companies or um, any of any, any topics that revolve around this is that habits that you need to actually be really, really good as a remote company are the same habits and techniques and practices that you should en be engaging as a, a regular co-located company in the same building or office. Um, and they will make you a great company. But the fact that you don't, you can get away with those with or get away with not doing those if you're in a, the same building and you just can't get away with not doing them as a distributed or remote company. So they're just highlighted. And in fact, I think that's why a lot of people have not actually gone to do that. They're, they're, they're not really set up to be remote or distributed. And now of course we find ourselves in the environment where everyone is a remote only company all of a sudden, and some people are able to respond or react to it. And it really shows who had been investing in their companies early and who hadn't. Absolutely. I think one of the, one of the things that Jerry and I were, were thinking a lot about is like, what have been the barriers that have prevented companies from adopting remote work in the, in the past? And one of the things that we were thinking about is something that you shared with our community several years ago, which is that failure oftentimes with companies and with the culture happens when people stop trusting each other. And that's when 
you don't trust each other to do the right things, that's where you start to see a lot of the, the breakdowns in adoption in a lot of these operations. And that this might be the number one reason why companies are hesitant to become remote. Can you share a little bit about your mental framework for how you build trust and how it's different doing it both with co-located teams or with remote teams? Sure. So the main way that I talk about building trust is as a leader, it's imperative that you do a certain set of things to build trust. One is you should be overly communicative. On a regular basis, in multi-modes, multi-forums, you should be communicating to folks, um, but not just uh, in a kind of dictatorial, broadcasty sort of way. You've got to say, here's what we're doing, or here's why we're doing it, here's how I look at making that decision, or gathering the feedback to make that decision. Is you, you basically try to expose out as much of that as possible. And in an early, overly invest in an early sort of way, if you do that early, you don't need to do that as much over time. And if you don't do that early, you need to overcorrect to do that more. So, you know, overly over communicate, really authentically, kind of empathetically communicate with people in a bi-directional sort of way. Don't just use a broadcast form, go and talk to smaller groups and hear feedback and also act on that feedback. That's how you build trust. Now in a remote sort of way, the mechanisms are different. You're going to be doing large Zoom calls or large video calls. You're going to be um, taking you know, uh, more phone calls than you would in, in other scenarios. And your calendar is your really only friend in a remote company. You really need to organize yourself so you can know where you're supposed to be and which calls. And weirdly, it's easier to do in remote. You don't have to jump from office to office and things of that nature. Um, and I see, and I, and I think what I've seen most when it breaks down in remote is that the worst of any one person's personality can manifest. And what I mean by that is if you're a leader in an organization and you tend to micromanage in a remote world, you'll become the worst version of a micromanager that you wow. can possibly be. And if you're someone who's prone to anxiety, or if you're some, you know, prone to gossip, if you're prone to drama, any one of those types of things in a remote world, all of those things are going to you know, be turned to 11. Uh, type of deal. So if you think about that alone, from a human psychology perspective, you as a leader should be watching for these things, but also trying to tamp those things down. The best way to do all those things is to make sure you're over communicating so that, uh, of course, you know, the back channels don't need to, to exist if they could possibly not exist, or someone's anxiety can be lessened. And I know this is a long answer to a rather simple question, I think, but it's involved. But the one thing I will say is, the easiest way to destroy productivity, morale, all those sorts of things in a remote way is to be a micromanager. That is the one way that things will go south. People tend to have the urge to check in, like how are we doing today, what's the progress, and some may even do it a few times a day. So how do you see people that overcome the tendency to do that? So in a super blunt and rather uh, stark sort of way. I think anyone who is a micromanager actually does not know how to do their job fully. This is a very, very strong statement I'm going to make on it, but it's, it's true. If you are a micromanager, you don't actually know how to get your job done without the jumping all the way down to the, to the level. And if you think about this as an executive, because this is where um, all of us in the industry talk about micromanagement as, as destroying morale on teams, it's because they don't know how to scale. If you don't know how to scale yourself, decision-making, 
progress, um, processes, whatever, you tend to micromanage because you think the only way I can get this done is if I go do this myself. Well, in fact, you're actually bad at your job. If you've ever said the only way I need to know how to do this is because I need to go do it myself, you are actually bad as a leader in your organization how to build scalable structures, scalable human organizations, and actually build them. So walking backwards from that statement, that is what you should be doing. You should be building the processes the communication channels and the feedback loops inside your organization that allow you to scale, get your information when you need it. And if you know how to do that and you're able to invest in it and it does not happen instantaneously, you wake up on a Monday and say, well, I'm going to have a scalable organization today. You're talking about weeks and months before you've got that stuff tamped down. That is something you should have been investing in way before you needed it. So that's the type of stuff you need to invest in. And I can go into detail about what I think that looks like or what I've had success with and doing that. So that means the tendency to micromanage is not specific to remote working at all. This has been a problem that been there for a while. So I absolutely think of it that way. It's it's the same thing as you don't become grossly overweight as a human overnight. But you can see as you gain weight as, as you grow, but you can't see the fact that you have a brittle organization in the same sort of manner and fashion. Because you as leaders, we this is my biggest fear. My biggest fear is that I've got blind spots as a leader. Because I know that as I progress in my career, or as I have more responsibility, or as my teens grow, people are going to filter information to me. And so my whole job is to make sure that the entire organization is actually achieving velocity, success, outcome, knowing that I likely don't have the full picture anymore, and I've still got to build that organization out. That's it, It's incredibly hard. I mean, I, I would imagine, you know, I've my scope of teams is roughly at the largest, probably a couple thousand. Imagine your Satya or Amy Hood or any of those people at Microsoft right now and what you've got to be thinking about and like what kind of organizational structure you've got to be building to actually achieve that sort of success. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a pre-investment before you need it. Um, and if you're not able to do that, then you can't do it overnight. You can't, you know, if you got out of shape over the course of 20 years. You're not going to get in shape um, in a matter of weeks even. And I don't think it's useful for me to sit here and say, hey, you know, you're you're out of luck now. You didn't, you didn't do what you were supposed to be doing for the past year. So now you're just in trouble. No, I do think that there's certain things that people can do still quickly. And it, it starts with the basics. And that it's literally going back to the basics. And as a leader, and this would go universally across the board, no matter what scale you are, now, the tactics to employ might be different depending if you're a 5,000-person organization or 1,000 or 50, but the, the, the principles would apply. One is you should start by over-communicating to your people. Um, what is the company about? What are we going to be doing? What are we trying to achieve on which time horizon for whom and you know what we think success looks like there? Classic management 101 type of stuff. Then you've got to actually understand how that works its way to whatever level of the organization needs to hear it. So, you know, job number one, if you think about success, if you, if you flip it around, is me as a senior leader in the organization needs to make sure that an engineer, when they come to work every day, knows why and what they're working on. So literally, that's if you boil it down, I need to make sure that every engineer in the organization knows what they're working on for why and for whom. That's how it, it would translate down to people. So if you are taking your over communicative approach, figure out how 
everybody in your organization can um, absorb that for their context. And if you have 15 layers between you and an engineer, you've got some work to do. It's going to take you a long time to, to, to fix that shit. But if you've got two layers, you could do it really quickly. You basically have to call town hall. You have to do a couple of different, maybe heavy handed sessions and then build out some of the things there. You know, that's the whole um, Lou Gerstner thing with IBM making elephants dance. It's very difficult. But if you have a very small organization, you could turn the ship pretty quickly. For what it's worth, I have um, some advice for people, depending on their scale, if it's useful for this context to say, here's what I would think you might want to do, depending on the size. Yeah, that'd be super helpful because it all comes down to what are the action people can take and what are the new perspective they can incorporate, internalize so that they can really improve the, the way they do things. So I think if you're small enough, you do you try to never work through layers. Even though layers are important for the execution of things, broad blast it to as many people as possible in your organization. So um, imagine you're 100 people, get everyone on a Zoom call, literally everybody, get them all on a Zoom call, talk about everything, make it an open session, just just communicate as much as possible that way. And if you think about maybe the size of your context being the limit to being able to have a, a valuable back and forth, it's a good approach. But imagine you're a 5,000 person organization. You need to write that down. You need to do a video. You need to do a town hall and all hands where you can get some anonymous Q&A or, or, or regular Q&A as well, back and forth. Then the next thing you need to do is you need to jump two levels down and have that exact same conversation with as many people in an open forum across the organization as possible. So think about it this way. If you're the CEO, do the right things. You broadcast it out, do a, an, an all-company event, do some Q&A, write it down, then jump down a level. Uh, not to your directs. They've already heard this. And if they've not been doing their job either, skip them, involve them in the conversation, but go direct to their directs and have the exact same conversation, but in a higher fidelity for their context way. Then do it again. Go two levels down from them and do it with that group of people. And the, and the reason why you're doing that is speed. And they need to hear the same message. They need to hear the same thing with no distillation, no uh, contextual. And they might ask a contextual question to you in that form that you are not capable of answering. So if I'm the CEO of a 5,000 person organization, they're asking me about disk purchases because of, um, of uh, uh, data center expansion, you can root it back into your first principles, but your head of infrastructure probably takes that question and figures out what to do with it. But the point being is you're trying to, you're trying to jump down a couple of levels each time to make sure that people hear it from the same person. Yeah, that's very important. And speaking of that, um, what are the signs, especially early signs of uh, mistrust so that people, they can realize there's an issue, they can act on it? The easiest way to know, I think, that there's mistrust happening is largely that you're hearing things from others about others, if that makes any sense. There's a, I, I love this one Eleanor Roosevelt quote. Um, I've used it in all of my presentations. I think, Jerry, you've seen this uh, in all of my stuff a couple of times, but it's Great minds talk about ideas, small minds, uh, average minds talk about events and small minds talk about people. If you think about that in the context of, of work, if your organization is talking about the ideas of your organization, I think you've got a healthy, the, as healthy an organization as you've ever possibly hoped for. If you're talking about events on a daily basis, which is basically responding to market, a, a competitor, some of the other customer feature, you've got a pretty average organization. I think that's where most organizations in the industry I uh, will end up and probably aspirationally should be just because they're not capable of being anything other than that. 
And then the toxic ones are always talking about people and they become hyper political. So as a leader, if what you're hearing about on a regular basis is people, you've got work to do, in my opinion. And if you're talking about events like response to the, the COVID-19 or our competitor or whatever, you're an average organization and your job should be to think about how you take it to ideas and things of that nature. And what people should typically do if they do hear their team are talking about people all the time. So the first thing is acknowledge that this is an organizational debt. I try to redirect that over time. This is a very, very difficult thing to do, by the way, because ingrained habits um, are one of the hardest things to um, undo. So imagine your organization has been this way. You're a new leader or you're taking over or you've been ignoring it for some time. And this is the default mode. And it has been for two or three years. You can't stop it right away. You're not going to be able to do it. So you have to redirect it. And that is you know, meeting one, um, one-on-one or, or organizational jujitsu. And you've got to be able to say, pivot from talking about a person to talking about an event or a project or something else or an outcome. And that's the easiest way to, to, to redirect these things. But you're still not going to train that organization to not behave that way overnight. You're going to have to do that a lot, a lot. So over-invest in it. And if it's, if it's something new that's popping up because it's remote or whatever, you do have an out in this one, which is, I'm going to pull that giant red cord on the bus and say, hey, I've, I've been witnessing something that we would never have done pre this event. And this, I don't like it. It disturbs me. I think no one here would like it. And here's how we got to stop it. I don't know why it's coming up, but I don't want it to be. You all can tell me why you think it's coming up, but this is not who we are. This is not what we're about. So let's not do that. And if there's a reason why it's happening, let me know the reason and I will work on it but we are not going to be this type of organization. You just hit it hard right away. If, if you have been that place for some period of time, you don't have the luxury of pulling that because everyone's going to be feel disingenuous. It's going to feel that there's no way that you're actually going to take this seriously because you hadn't been taking it seriously for a long time. You can't be new disciplinary parent. If you'd always been fun loving game parent, all of a sudden people are, it's just not the way that works. I guess it required a lot of repetition on daily basis through all layers of management to reinforce that and so examples yes. to people. And never, and never, never reward that behavior. Even if you had been doing it for a long time, you've got to stop that. That's the one thing you've got to stop. Do. You can't continue to reward it. And I will say that that is one of the harder things to do for people. Now we're talking a little bit more about organizational and um, company building leadership, but a lot of people are fearful. They'll say they want to reward somebody not because of the behavior, but for other things. And if they don't, then they're worried that person will leave and you know the, the company is in, in, a, in a hole at that point. But if you continue to reward that sort of person's behavior or that type of behavior, you're just going to entrench it further. Yeah, and it's very important to know there's a, a way to observe and measure um, the healthiness of the organization by like what they talk about. Thanks for sharing well, that. Two other things for what it's worth that I, I like to think about um, while doing this is, again, invest early, but if you had not some things you could do, do skip levels, do group level conversations, do open forum conversations where people come, come to you. Also, find out the canaries in your organization. And the canaries, the organizational canaries, as I call them, are people that are great examples of who your organization should be on its best days. And these are 
um, at all levels of your organization, you should have these people. You should have an engineer, you should have a manager, you should have a director, a VP, a salesperson, a marketer, you know, you get the idea and they should be in every organization. And your canaries will tell you a lot about the organization. If you have a regular communication channel with them, you'll actually understand the health of your organization pretty well. And the one thing I would say about canaries is you've got to find people that are the examples of your organization on the best day, but also people who, um, and you've got to do work to make sure that they are able to do this. They give you everything raw and straight. If they filter stuff, you, 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 you're, you're in trouble again. How do you go about curating and uh, start building it out? Like who do you find to be your canary and, uh, and how do you typically maintain that relationship so that you have the ability to absorb information from elsewhere because that being uh, filtered? So I think it all starts with you as a leader, which is um, if people feel that you are two or three different people, you know, one person in public, one person in private, one person with your execs or whatever, they'll over time erode that trust. So don't be an authentic person and approach people in a human to human sort of way. Um, and you could be open and honest with people and say, okay, I love that feedback, although I'm, I'm having a hard time internalizing it or struggling with how we can deploy it, but I'll, I'll, I'll take it back and I'll, I'll reflect on it. Also, it's going to take you some time because you could be, excuse me, you could be wrong in the canary. The canary uh, person could maybe not be ultimately over time the example, and you've got to be willing to understand that too. So you need to build up these relationships. You should be building these relationships with everyone in your organization or as many people as possible from the beginning. And that just involves watching, listening, absorbing, reflecting, seeing how people communicate, hearing how people talk about others. You know, if you're a new leader, and that's the easiest way to, to talk about this, if you're a new leader to an organization, you've come in and you want to go about doing this in all of your uh, listening tour um, activities, which I encourage every leader to do in their organization is go on a listening tour, you'll hear the names of several people pop up that people just absolutely either love working with or are astoundingly um, amazing at their jobs or uh, all that. You start to notice those things. Those are themes that emerge for people. And then there's themes for fixes and themes for other things. That is a great way to do that. If you're an established leader and you had not been doing this already, you should be going on a listening tour in an all distributed, all remote way now, because that is, again, what I, I mentioned before about how you're going to communicate that out. You'll start to hear that same sort of information pop up to you as people feel more comfortable to give you that information. We'll be back right after a quick break. Before we move on, Jerry, I had a quick, quick follow-up question because one of the things that you shared, Jason, that really resonated was about one of your biggest fears being blind spots in leadership and the fear of people not sharing with you the real stuff that's going on. And you talked a lot about how the canaries can be a big pathway to do that. What, what have you done to set up the relationship with the canaries to just be really straight with you about the, the feedback? Is there something that you do repetitively or is there something like you set out as an expectation on, on the front end? What's, what's that like? Uh, no, I mean, the, for the most part, anyone can be a canary. I don't think of them as a bespoke group of people. Um, I think of it as people whose um, feedback I, I genuinely trust and value because over time they've proven that they have the perspective that you want or um, the output and you know they're in tune with the culture of the organization and things like that. I genuinely think of this as just straight up human to human connection for the most part, which is, hey, I, I love the feedback. Uh, um, I, I, I'm going to action it and I'm going to take it back and I'm going to do a certain thing with it. And then they, they see that you've done something with it. And then they've got more trust in you um, over time. Or if you're not going to, tell them that. 
because it's again, it's it's a it's a thing. So I've had people who I absolutely trust their judgment on a lot of things, and I disagree with something that was going to be done for the organization. And I've told them that in one of our conversations. I said, hey, I actually agree with you on this topic, although it's not going to be something I'm going to go do because I don't think it's worth it for the organization to go through this. I think it's just something that we might want to live with for a little while um, at our stage. And at some point in the future, when we're bigger or different or something, whatever it be, we'll go do something with it. But it's not right for us right now. And they, we, we disagreed on the topic, but we were clear that we disagreed on it. And it was pretty straightforward. I appreciate that, like the the clarity and the authenticity being the access point for how do you build and fulfill trust for clear feedback like that. One of the worst things I think you could do as a leader is to also then massage that. Mm. So if we do that, and then later I'm wrong, and I don't acknowledge that I was wrong in whatever that was, you just basically destroyed that relationship very easily for for no value, you know, and and um, I think it's something that you have to not do. And I have been wrong. Obviously, all leaders are, are wrong at points in their career. And I have gone to someone and said, hey, I think I messed that up, obviously. Like, we, that was not the right call. I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to fix it now. I'm going to go back and go do something that needs to be done. And those are humbling. And a lot of people, because as leaders, sometimes you get wrapped up in your own marketing or ego. That's not a technique that you want to do because there, you so much is wrapped up in the persona that they won't do that well there's a there's a view of you that's maybe outside of your organization to the world and then there's a view of you that's inside and more people should be concerned with what is going on inside their organization than outside but that's inverse to where most people spend their time great thank you that was awesome switching to communication that has been a an area of uh challenges for working with remote teams and jason during our previous conversation, I know you have uh, a very strong opinion about which communication mechanism works better for remote teams. Do you want to share some perspectives on that? Sure. So I think that for the most part, it can be distilled down into a couple of different things. But um, this is a, it's a podcast, and you're not going to be able to see this, but I'm going to use my hands while I'm describing this because it's easiest. But I think of it this way. I think of the communication pathways inside your organization needing to exist and the appropriate actions and responses that happen at each one of those levels need to exist. And if you're two people in a garage or you're 5,000 people, it actually looks the same to a large degree. It's just, there's not as many steps involved with two people versus 5,000 people. But think of it this way. If you're a CEO of an organization and you want to go and do stuff, you want to go and change the direction of the company or broadcast out a strategy shift or something, 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 maybe COVID-19 is a good example of this. Um, assumptions that were made in the yearly planning are no longer hold. Therefore, we're going to have to rebalance our plans, our burn, all, all that sort of stuff. You're the CEO. You're in the top over here on the left-hand side um, of a V-shaped communication pathway. Your job up here is to over-communicate all the mission and vision, the why, the context, and what that's going to mean in the strategy. And your job then is to communicate it down and get the organization to, to keep communicating down the context appropriately until you hit the bottom vertex of that V. And that means that that engineer, that marketer, that salesperson knows exactly what they're supposed to do on a daily basis with that information, how it in, informs their world and their decision-making process. Because part of this here is proper communication and delegation of decisions. So if you think about another thing that is core to leadership is Every leader in an organization should make the set of decisions that only they can make and then 
delegate all the other ones. And the only way that you can do that is if everyone is empowered to make the right decisions with the right context, and you have invested ahead of time and trained the neural net of the organization to make those appropriate decisions well. So only the CEO can decide who is on the exec team. Only the CEO can decide what the burn rate is going to be and uh, a set of decisions that look like that. So that CEO makes those decisions and then delegates down the set of decisions that go to the, the, the next level, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down to the engineer um, in the organization. Now, again, 5,000 people versus two people, not as many steps, right? And in many cases, there's dual hats involved with the two people, 5,000 people, you've got to communicate that. Well, from the, the bottom of the, the V all the way back up, is again, from the individual engineer, marketer, or salesperson, all the way back to the CEO. And this is the feedback loop mechanism. How are the statuses being updated? How are the projects progressing? Are we on track? What's our budget look like? Are we doing the right things? All the way back up to the CEO knowing that I have a healthy, on-target organization, or things are askew and off, or this project's not going well. Those are the various communication pathways that need to exist back up to the CEO so that CEO understands what they're saying, what they're doing from a shift in strategy or, or vision to it is happening or not happening. And again, so your goal, if you think about this as a V, is to actually close the, the, the V to almost like a, a, a straight up and down vertical line. But you, that's theoretically, or I'm saying it's practically impossible. You can't do that. So you need to get to the, the narrowest V possible. That's what your goal should be as a, as a very well-run organization. Well, most organizations actually are look more like a horizontal line because the, the CEO actually never gets feedback on certain things or contexts. And what they're using is using proxy measures to, to, to fake it. So if you're a poorly run public organization, you're using stock price to say, our, is our strategy shift working? Well, that's a terrible metric and proxy for if you're a healthy organization with good communication pathways because there's too many variables involved. So you've got to find out what that looks like and how to build that. And this is literally organization building, company building 101 type of stuff. But most people don't think about it as a system or a framework or anything like that. And they just basically wing it. And they're winging it because they're doing it with culture or they're doing it with other proxies for certain, for, for certain good company building or they just simply don't know. And if you think about it this way, a lot of good habits will emerge out. Do you mind give an example of what you can measure as the gap between the two parts of the V? So I think a good way to think about this might be, maybe you're going through an acquisition. You're going to buy a company. You're going to change. You're hoping to change the outcome of your business by strategically acquiring a company to change the market notion of who you are and what you're going to do. But what you want to actually probably out, output there is what are... Um, you as a CEO, again, at the top, top, what are the analysts saying about your strategy now? What are your customers saying about their strategic investment over with you over a four-year time horizon based upon your new roadmap? What does your new roadmap look like with this new company inside your portfolio? And then does it play to the overarching strategy? That's a, a very long lead output. Most people aren't going to be in there buying companies to just change their strategic asset. But let's say, it, let's say it's a revenue shift. We need to change our burn to have an 18-month, 24-month uh, inside our portfolio, um, sorry, inside our company uh, capitalization. We have to actually guarantee that. So that means that we're going to slow down on hiring and we're going to tighten up some of our discretionary spending in travel, which none of us are doing now, or cloud spend. 
Well, that's a good metric. You got to measure those things and have the feedback loops on them. And if you saw that the um, cloud spend's going up and something's not happening, you got to, and that's the first time you heard about it is when your CFO told you, told you in the monthly reviews, well, that's, you probably got some work to do, but you can think about that. Project status is always a good one, which is, and it's a classic way. All projects are green until one week before they're due and then they're red. That's just the nature <laughs> of our business. All it, 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 I've never seen a project go something different and you know it just seems to be that way. So what you really probably have to figure out is when is the customer going to see this for the first time? When are, are we on track to a customer touching this? Are we on track to a salesperson being able to um, articulate this to the field? When are we going to show roadmap? Um, future roadmap after GA or after public beta or whatever you're going to do to to customers. These are these are very different ways to think about tracking progress because they're actual things that should be happening down that right side of the V at various points in a healthy project status. And if they're not there by the time they get to you, that means you've got a broken feedback loop. How do you create smooth communication downwards, upwards, and lateral? I think the answer you had earlier talk about the downward upward, but in terms of lateral communication, especially for yeah. more senior neural leader where they have to spend a lot of time working with their, you know, product counterpart, marketing counterpart, sales counterpart, what kind of sessions do you have in terms of ensuring that the lateral communication also happens in a healthy way? So I think the way I like to look at these is I'll use my engineering lens, but it actually applies to broader company stuff as well. Um, but it's usually easier to grok from an engineering perspective and just apply it to the company. But I love the concept of Apple's directly uh, directly responsible individual, a singular person who owns the thing through and is responsible for making sure that it gets communicated. Um, in classic project management parlance, there's the RACI model, which is the RACI or various um, uh, variants on it, which is who is responsible, who is accountable, who is consulted, and who is informed about how decision-making happens, how communication happens, and who does that. Um, and then there's Agile with a capital A and Agile with a small a. And the concepts of Agile are incredibly important. The concepts of RACI and the concepts of directly responsible are incredibly important. So I, I like to employ all of those concepts and build out the mechanisms. And how I like to build those out is I like to use um, engineering managers, engineering leads, product managers, or whoever, and just say, hey, your job is to do these sets of things and like carve out what those look like. But getting very specific, um, or, or project managers, project and program managers are actually where a lot of this breaks down inside of larger organizations. Smaller organizations should be using tech leads, senior engineers, managers to do a lot of this stuff until it becomes too overwhelming. And then you bring in the project and product manager, uh, program managers to do a lot of this. But that's a different conversation, too. That's one of those things that helps you get scale. Doing it too early leads you to be slow. Doing it too late means you've got chaos. you got to find the right point in time to do that. But um, what I really like people to do is say, okay, in our organization, engineering leads do this. Product leads do this. Engineering managers do this. And they just carve out essentially the set of things that look like small A Agile and the RACI model and say, my job is to go do these things. And that, you know, mine is to go communicate to people. Mine is to make sure that the decision is ratified and written down somewhere and is communicated and documented and everyone understands that. Mine is to make sure that the execs are on board or to make sure, blah, blah, blah. But it's very, very important to understand that there is a discrete set of things that need to happen 
and having people assigned to making sure those discrete things happen is what makes or breaks that. What are the subtle signs for bad communications you often see? So there is, uh, I mean, one of the most subtle things is people being surprised. We we always say in 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 our industry, you never want to surprise your boss. Um, well, <laughs> you never want to actually surprise anybody. People shouldn't be surprised. And imagine that you have the most well-run engineering organization. Everyone's on the same page, but for some reason, legal is surprised that something's happening. Well, that means that somewhere the linkage between the projects getting done and engineering working been legal. It's broken, and you got to fix that somewhere. Um, so surprise is a really, really good marker of this. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, uh, it's unlike any personal romantic things, like surprise is not a good thing in, in work settings. So and pay attention <laughs> to that and catch that all the time. And uh, if they're surprised, there's, it just says there's something something to be fixed. Yep. And then I, you're never going to quantify surprise. I don't think there's ever going to be a startup out there saying like, we're, we're trying to quantify surprise for you in an NPS sort of way. But that's something you should be watching for. And a lot of times, um, I've seen it work in a couple of different ways. One is just a complete organizational linkage break, which is engineering is not talking to um, legal or sales or um, product is completely not talking to somebody or, or finance is not, talk, you know, that an entire organization. I've also seen it that you actually have a node inside one of those organizations, which is not communicating. So it was like, hey, we've communicated to everyone, everyone legal all the way from the top down nodes, except there's one node inside there that is not communicating to their their folks. Well, you got to go fix that then. And that might mean, hey, what's going on? Or it might mean the person's not understanding their role and responsibility, or it might mean they're the, they're the wrong person. You never know. But you've it's a, another surprise element. There is a, somebody was unaware of something happening and they're surprised. The other thing I think is um, not being transparent in people. So this goes to surprise, but not people not knowing that decisions were made or decision shifts or things of that nature. And quite typically where I see this the most is with CEOs. CEOs will change their mind or change an approach and assume that by saying it to somebody, one person, that that is a shift. This is terrible mechanism. You have to understand that you need to say something four and five times and you need to broadcast it. You don't say something in the Slack and then know and think the company is basically shifting out of that. It's it's inconceivable. That is usually where I see that breakdown the most. Weirdly, people who run projects know that you cannot do that, but people who run companies seem to not understand that. Then mm. the last thing, I'm not sure if you all have ever read um, a book called The Subtle Art of Sabotage. No. It's 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 quite fascinating. It's um, I believe it's like a 1944 field guide for World War II behind enemy lines, how you can slow down the enemy in subtle ways. It was a CIA, I believe it was a CIA manual that was declassified and talked about. It's kind of fascinating. But one of the ones I love most inside there is the reopening of decisions made, which is, I'm sure we've all seen this inside organizations, which is we've made a decision, we're gonna go do this. The right people have been communicated to, the right pathways have been done, everyone's on the same page. And then someone literally pops up from somewhere and says, you know, I think we should revisit this decision. I just want to have the discussion again. I want to do that. It's not based on data. It's not based on new learnings. It's more of the want to have that discussion again. Time to revisit it. There's no new things. It's just that to me is another one of those, which is it's broken. It means that that person's not on the same page or that organization's not on the same page. No matter what happened, it's another one to watch for. And I actually think it's, it's okay to revisit decisions. That's not what I'm saying. 
at all, but you should be doing it intentionally. It should be based on data or new learnings or something like that. But just the, 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 the subtle, I just want to reopen the decision is another way to think about that. That's a really interesting cue to pay attention to. And, and so through this whole phone call, there's been sort of this image coming in my head of this almost giant chessboard. And, and I really wish we could have people sort of see how you've been physically representing the organization and how you've been helping guide the decisions. Because it feels like we're, we're witnessing a visual game of, of chess and company building and how you facilitate these different leadership maneuvers. Uh, it's really cool. And, and with this latest example of the subtle art of sabotage, it like almost feels like, yeah, this is just a visual chess game. It's awesome. Well, so it's weird the way my mind works. I'm a very visual person um, yeah. and that you are seeing it here while we're talking. And I think it's important though, uh, the way I think about these things and others is if you think about these as a uh, uh, protobus, like you're basically sending packages of information around the organization and you want them to be opened up and read and you want the API to be pretty standard and all of that sort of stuff. What I mentioned before, I got this from somebody at GitHub a long time ago and I love it which is one of the things I'm actually trying to do is if you think about an organization as a very large neural net, I'm actually trying to train each one of these nodes to make decisions that I would typically make or better than I would hopefully while I'm not in the room. And if you can do that, you've got independent nodes. If you can't do that, then you actually have to worry about the full hierarchical dissemination of information. But if you can actually independent these things, you can. it looks a lot more like a neural net than it does anything else. And so it goes from a flat, checkers game to a chess game to a three-dimensional chess, but you can actually have multiple games going on at the same time. Wow. Yeah. And that's the way to scale yes. for the impact as a, as a leader. Yes. It's interesting. Um, I Now in my career, what I actually do the most, um, I get a lot of calls from VC friends these days. And they said, I, I know you're not taking this job as CTO at this company. I know you're not. But can you please go in and interview with them to show them how you think? and how you do the work as a CTO, because what we're trying to show them is what they should be looking for in a candidate. And interestingly, the VCs are doing that with me. What they're doing is trying to train the neural net of those companies, their portfolio companies, on what to look for for company building because they've not gone through that before. So as an industry, they're trying to do it. But I think that that's one of the most fascinating things is that as companies are going to be scaling, not that many people have seen it. And they're thinking that the techniques that worked over here are going to work at 5,000 people. They just don't, you know, things break all the time. Yeah. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. A cool question for uh, communication is since we're talking about uh, many remote teams, in terms of tools for communication, there's yeah. video, there's Slack, there's uh, you know Google Doc. What's your recommendation? What's your take on choosing the right tool for the right scenario? So I think that um, think about this from a, a a boulders, rocks, pebbles, sand type of thing. Things that you nest, you absolutely need to have in a distributed company, and things that are just very, very nice to have at the bottom. <clears throat> if you can only choose one tool you choose the one that becomes your institutional memory. And that has to be an async communication tool. 
GitHub is one of those, and it is a quintessential institutional memory tool. You write something down an issue, you lock it, you ratify the decision. You can even show comments um, uh, in you know real uh, not real time, but async uh, communication that happens on it. I think that's the only one that is absolutely one hundred percent necessary to do. If you don't have that, you're in trouble. Uh, I would say if there's a one B is video, just like this, and everything else after that is a nice to have. Now, the reason why I say you go all the way from async to video is because they're at different ends of a spectrum. And async can be consumed five years from now. You can go back and someone passes you a URL. You can go read about the history about why that was made. Um, decisions can be ratified in there from a video call. You can write down all the output from the video call and post it, and then it lives forever. But on the other side, whenever you're having a discussion and it's going awry in one of those places, you jump to video because this is the highest fidelity communication channel we have to see subtle things. And if you've been watching me, I've been doing this for over 10 years, but if you look at me, I'm super expressive with my hands, my face, my mannerisms, I'm overly exaggerating to try to show you and convey emotional context, which you cannot get from written communication. And I'm doing that because I know that this is something that needs to get done. And this is the only way you can do that in a remote way. You can't even do it over the phone because you can't see the way someone's head is bent or the way that they're pacing, or if they're distracted, you just don't know those things. So video is super important. Everything after that is, is, is a super nice to have. And so uh, everyone will always ask me this, so I'll just get in front of it. Where does Slack fit into this? Well, I think Slack is one of the most non-essential when it comes to remote communication, but it is a very nice to have. But if you can only choose two, it is async communication and video. Slack, or the and I won't pick on Slack. This is not a pick on Slack. This is pick on chat. Yep. Chat should never be your institutional memory. It should never be where all the information in your company is, is held. It is If you think of chat as a five-minute communication with somebody in a very cheap sort of way, and then it rolls off the back scroll and you never see that again, that is the way you should treat chat. Chat should never be ratified, you know, things that are ratified there and they live there and you have to go back scroll that. Somebody should treat chat as a way that I need to take whatever we talked about here and post it to my async spot and say, we've had this discussion, we've made this decision, here's what we've done. I want to go back a little bit on the, on the video calls. And you mentioned that being expressive through your um, hand to your uh, physical expression is very important. So I remember that in an earlier talk you did with us, uh, maybe two years ago, you mentioned the type of practice you're very intentional about that, uh, practicing in front of mirror to uh, and observe yourself. Uh, can you share some tips? And is that something people like just naturally have it, or they actually need to put extra effort to practice? I'm assuming there's some set of people that naturally have that. I do not naturally have that. And if there are a set of people that do, I envy them because we are all going to become more distributed and remote in the future. So this is something that I've had to do over time and invest in. What I said to you a couple of years ago is true. I watch myself on video as much that I'm watching others, but I'm making sure that I'm representing my emotional state. So it's a quick glance. Am I actually doing that sort of representation here? And then I'm watching how everyone else is responding and emoting and on video too. So the things that I've noticed about me is if I'm processing and I, if somebody hit me with something out of left field, some new information and and I was taken completely by surprise and I let my, my guard down on a video call like this and I start to process, 
my head goes down, I go to the left, and I let my face drop. And next thing I know, and it's happened to me on multiple occasions, somebody's texting me behind the scenes who trusts me, like one of those canaries, and said, what just, you, you look pissed. Why are you so mad right now? What's going on? I'm like, no, no, I'm actually processing. I'm trying to rebalance that chessboard real time right now. And I was like, oh, shoot, I need to get back into the moment here and make sure that people understand because everyone is watching me as a senior leader in the organization. And sometimes you want to express displeasure, let's just say. And, and you've got to know what that looks like too. And you've got to also get people to that spot. So I have to, I've had to intentionally invest in it. And I assume others do too. But I should, I should add one thing here. Whenever you're on a video call, I've seen some incredibly bad habits. And one of the worst, I think, is that you've got a video call up um, and you're supposed to be in the moment with these, these folks. Remember, all video calls are incredibly expensive. I mean, or, or all meetings are incredibly expensive. But what I've seen people do is they try to multi-channel and they have, they're responding to Slack conversations or they're doing something else. And the, 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 the chatty Slack conversations to a video call, your, your context switching that way, is one of the easiest ways to be bad at both of those channels at the same time. And though when from an expressiveness perspective, everyone knows that you're responding to chat messages because they can see your eyes move or they can see the way that your, your facial expressions change or your fingers are moving on the keyboard. And it's, uh, it's incredibly distracting and uh, a lot of people don't appreciate that. Um, most people don't. So I would say that if you're gonna make any one behavioral change, do that. Close Slack while you're doing a video call. Yeah, that's an easy one to follow. That's a really, really powerful tip. And um, what's so funny is, you know, when, when Jerry was talking about like uh, n- not necessarily being expressive with the emotional expression, there have been moments and times where I've sort of misinterpreted his facial reaction as like a displeasure. Um, and then we've had a chance to like communicate that afterwards. But um, it's been really, I guess it's really cool to, to see that could be where the breakdown of communication is, is entirely in the emotions that you are expressing on the video call and how that's conveying the fidelity of information for the teams. Well, a good example of this is um, I've, got, I've, I've got all Apple products at this point in my career. And one of the things that I have is if my phone calls the computer rings, you know, the, you know that whole thing, and you can pick it up. And I got a call from someone I don't normally get a call from in one meeting. And I was immediately trying to process, why am I getting a call from this person right now out of the blue? And I noticed that immediately the tone and tenor of that conversation with the, with the folks changed. I said, oh, I'm sorry, sorry. I got momentarily distracted because I got a call from somebody that I, I, I do need to take. Let me pause this for one minute. And I went back, I took the call and I came back and I said, false alarm, sorry about that. I just needed to let's get back into it. I was, um, and then you, you reset the context to what you, you needed to be. So I come back, I came back in, I said, okay, you're all telling me about this. I remember myself getting pretty excited about it. Um, when I got distracted. So walk me back through like back up 30 seconds, walk me back into this. Let's go. I think that's really powerful. That goes back to what you were talking about in the trust section about restoring integrity within the relationships. If there's something that's distracting you or interrupting you, acknowledging it and sort of naming it and then letting them know that you had been paying attention. I think that's a really powerful way to, to continue to rebuild um, trust. We had a, wanted to transition a little bit, Jason, to talk a little bit about an engagement. And there was a, a quote that from one of your talks with our community where you talk about how the worst place or worst time to introduce yourself to your neighbor is when your house is on fire. And this sort of, I feel like captures a lot of the dilemma that many leaders and organizations are currently facing in terms of transitioning to full-time remote and distributed companies. And so I think there's, there's a pretty common fear for people in remote work that if 
you're no longer co-located, your team will be more likely to be disengaged. And so I was wondering if you could comment on what creates engagement in teams and how people should sort of think about this issue that they'll be facing. So I think that um, team engagement and output might not necessarily be the same thing for what it's worth as well. So team engagement could also mean that they're sharing memes with each other and building rapport, but that means that the work is not getting done. And what I've said too, is that a good culture and a good output are, are you know, a leader needs to cultivate both of those. Because if you're all ping pong tables and drinks in the fridge, but you never achieve anything of meaningful success, that is failure. But if you achieve meaningful success um, by burning people out, that is also failure. You know, and you've got to cultivate the two of those things. I think the way that you you build that and, and, and can engage with it and keep people kind of motivated and, and, and coached and engaged is to have really simple things. One is have some standing check-ins, um, lightweight you know, stand-ups or whatever, a couple times a week, make sure people are on the same page. That's great. Two, make sure everyone understands the goal. Remember, you know, don't get bogged down into the tactics nearly as much or the um, the day-to-day, make sure that everyone is redirecting to the actual goal of why you're going to achieve something and continue to do that because people it will get lost. It always does. It always gets lost over time. Three, find a way that you are not getting into everyone's business every single day or every hour or whatever, but you've got the right mechanism. That's why I like stand-ups every couple of days because it, it gives you a forum to have those conversations. And then also time box everything. Everything should be time boxed. One week sprints, two week sprints, quarters, whatever, figure out what those time boxes are. And then if you're, I'll go into engineering land. Most, um, I've seen two, two practices inside engineering, uh, engineering teams that um, I try to break when I see them right away. One is that's not possible. I, I like to say this, I said, there's a thousand ways in which something will fail. Our job is to find the one way in which it could succeed. And then my job is to make sure that we're doing those things. As an example, if, if we're building a product and you say, it's never going to work, it would take too much. We would need five more people, two two more years of runway, and we would need this to go right in the market. And I was like, well, okay, I still think it's good. Let's go figure out a way for me to get you five more people to figure out two year, more years of runway and to go build it. Those are just, You've just laid out how we could have success. Let's go action that plan and make sure if we want to go do that. The other is when you time box something, the natural reaction is for every engineering organization to say, can't do this in that time frame, whatever this bit is, is too big to fit inside that box. We won't actually know. And in my experience building software, there's never been a single time that I've ever found in my career that you can't have meaningful chunks broken down into small discrete units of time, which are one or two weeks. No matter how complex the project, you can always find some measurable unit that is one to two weeks. And what that really tells me is that we don't fully understand the problem yet. So good example of this is um, um, I am incredibly indebted to the original GitHub Actions team at GitHub. Um, in particular, there were two senior leaders in the organization that, that really stepped up. Um, one uh, was our head of infrastructure and one was the head of our product designer. They're remarkable people. And what they did is when we put out the grand vision for what GitHub Actions was supposed to be in five years and then broke it down to what we wanted to see, it get done um, to, to, to show the world that GitHub was going to be something different. There was a lot of internal angst around that. Too big, too audacious. And remember, this is pre-acquisition. So we were a much smaller unit. We were, we were run a little bit differently. It was, it was a different time for us. 
And both of these two people said, we will show you a working prototype. And it won't work for all use cases, but an end-to-end demo prototype will have all throwaway code in two weeks. And they literally got the team together. They got them virtually and physically connected. They did a two-week sprint um, and they showed a working end-to-end demo. And that literally became one of the most important things that GitHub has ever done. And it, GitHub Actions will, will grow and it'll be a multi-year massive platform project. But they showed the world and more importantly, the investors and, and Microsoft and Google and other partners, what it could look like in a two-week sprint. And you know that's the type of thinking I think it takes to get stuff like that done. Yep, and that's a very good example. I have experience on a smaller scale, but being able to do something quickly and prototype and show the world, that just saves a ton of time for going back and forth, have discussion and and decide whether something worthwhile to be to, to invest. Yep. This is super direct. Showed in code. Yep. Um, hopefully we'll have the opportunity to maybe dive into that in a separate episode. Yeah, that, that would be a fascinating one. That's one of my favorite topics to talk about because that project was so gnarly from the beginning to end um, and so massively important to GitHub and, and, and honestly the world and what we're doing. And those two were remarkable, remarkable leaders to get that done. Yeah, going back to engagement, and now we are uh, forced to work uh, fully remotely. Um, what does the role of in-person interaction play in terms of creating engagement? Uh, so I think if you think about um, percentage of contacts conveyed, as an example, like what if you're in person and you and I are communicating, and we have a very imperfect mechanism for conveying contacts to one another. It's all verbal and then the physical cues and things like that. But you are never 100% going to have my context. If I write it down and give it to you or talk to you or work through whiteboards for hours, you're still not going to have 100% of my context. So let's assume that it's just 99 because it's not 100, but let's assume it's 99. It's as close as you possibly can get. Well, I would say that video can play a role in that up to the probably the point of 90%. I think that like that might be the delta. There's 9% delta between what video can do and in-person can do. It's just a little bit imperfect. You're getting a flat, ver- a 2D version of me, not a 3D version. There's only so long that we can go into this. Whiteboarding is a little bit more awkward until the tools get better. Uh, even Zoom has some whiteboarding, but it's just, it's not quite the same, but it's the delta difference is not that large. Maybe let's just call it 9% for, the, for purposes of this. Well, uh, in that case, I think that if you think about what the you just asked is the role is, could be diminishing over time. I think that mostly organizations will, like the great ones will be remote first because those are the habits that it takes to be a great organization anyway. And they know they have better access to talent. The poor ones will go back to business as usual and assume that you need to input that extra 9% to be great when in fact it was the first 90 that made you great. And that is video or in person as well. And um, think of it as in person as an optimization that needs to be made. And we give you a different way to frame this, which is if you are new, to, uh, I'm, a, I'm a big into sports and um, uh, big into fitness. And that was something that I really got into a couple of years ago. And most of the fitness industry is what I would call optimizations. And they're trying to distinguish themselves from others. But the basics of weightlifting are the basics of weightlifting. And if you have, if you have a limited amount of time to invest, the rules are super simple and straightforward and it will get you 85 to 90% of the way to your goal. And if your goal is lifelong fitness and health and whatever, you need nothing more than that. 
Now, if your goal is to become the world's number one all-time bodybuilder or powerlifter or Olympic athlete, then you have to move into optimization range in extreme measures. But if you're not doing the first 90%, you're never going to be an Olympian anyway. So you focus on those first 90%. Then once you're there, get your optimizations. This might also be another aside that we can cut out, but have either of you seen the the sci-fi movie Arrival? I think I have. It's a uh, it's with like Amy Adams. It's like the weird spaceships that kind of look like contact lenses. Yeah. Yep. So I, I was just like thinking a lot about that when you were sharing about the context differences or the fidelity of communication differences between video and and phone calls. And Jerry and I this morning actually were, were talking about Chinese characters and how the different meaning that gets communicated in these different structures. Um, so not necessarily a point to this aside, like, but what we discovered was crisis and, or what I discovered this morning was crisis and opportunity are, are sort of representing the same Chinese characters okay. and the aliens in arrival in a similar way, like would represent entire multi-page paragraphs just in a single visual construct. And so that just makes me think about like communication is so complex and the fidelity of it is so important. And that if you can use the higher fidelity forms, you're able to to better make it happen. So we'll probably cut that out. But well, it, you know, I think it's important to recognize, and I think though the what the logical extreme of that is require everyone to be in the same room because that is the highest fidelity. And I think what people lacked in context there is the delta difference between those two. And so mm. I, I think of it this way: is, is um, if I can get ninety percent with video, and I get the best people, and I can get all the other goodness that comes with a remote. I will take that. And then the other stuff that that last 9% or whatever it is, is an optimization. And then I will, I will find the appropriate time to do that. But you you largely only need it in certain contexts. You don't need it everywhere. So maybe you need it in, as example, pandemic responses, but we're finding now too, you don't even need it there because everyone had to go remote. So when do you actually need that last 9% to become great? Who knows? You know, we've never tried it the other way. Maybe that's maybe I'm wow. actually wrong. Maybe my percentages are that uh, in person is actually 95, in video is 94%, and I'm using the wrong percentage differences, and so it's almost irrelevant. So zooming out and like in the context of everything that we've talked about so far, between trust, communication, and engagement, and thinking about where people are sort of at in in their dealing as a company with COVID-19 and becoming a remote. What does the process look like for hiring people in a fully remote process? So I think um, it's, it's, again, weirdly not different um, to what I might classify as what I would like um, a hiring process to look like. And that's probably influenced by the fact that I've been doing this for 10 years. And I think that remote hiring process applies to a hiring process and it can be remote only. So I think you should ask the question of what are you trying to achieve with any sort of on-site process? And most of the people when they, I've asked them this question is they want to get to know the person. They want to see how they gel with the team. They want to know um, the, their, the face-to-face communication because that's the way you, you can feel some sort of comfort with the person. Well, that says more about the organization to me than the candidate. That's all about the organization because the organization is not able to achieve those things in a remote way. So how do you do that? Well, you've got to have a set of questions where you've got to have engagement mechanisms that look like this. And then you've got to intentionally try to do that. So again, you know, it's about those, the organization doing it. I think that remote only hiring, again, looks no different, except that let me add one caveat. And this is something, again, I like as a hiring process, but I see most people do it differently. And I would advise them to change, particularly in a remote only. 
most people want to design a hiring flow panel output, which involves candidate talking to person, candidate talking to person, candidate talking to person, those people talking to each other. If we already talked about the fact that communication loses fidelity inside that, the one easy, really quick, necessary change I would recommend to people is do two people in an interview with a candidate. And the reason why is because they don't then have to do any sort of Rosetta Stone translation to, well, I heard this from the person and I heard this from the person. They at least heard the exact same thing. And then they could talk about that conversation with each other. If they don't do that, then you've lost all of that fidelity of communication. So I recommend that everyone immediately go to at least two people in, in those conversations. And I don't think you add more conversations to this. I don't think you then then add two to each one of those. I think you collapse them to to less interviews because I think that's another thing. There's too many interviews. There's just too many. And the reason why is because people are bad at hiring. People are bad at uh, the ability to understand talent and who is who is a good candidate and all of those sorts of things. So that's the one change I would make. The other change I would make is people then want to know about programming skill. Well, you're never going to find that out in person anyway. Those whiteboard sessions that Google and Facebook and others have been doing for years and elite code stuff, those are horrible ways to know if people are actually developers. We all know this. The industry knows this, but that is the way that we've gone for whatever incredibly terrible reason. So have them actually do a real project, a simple one, a couple of hour thing, like have a couple of different mechanisms that you can do, whether that real project is reviewing a pull request or that real project is consuming information from an API, or that real project is pseudo fixing an open source bug because you're an open source company and how you might do that. Have them do something that looks like that, but then don't critique their way of doing it. Have them explain why they went down that path. Then you are actually interviewing a candidate to see if they're they're a good fit. Anything else is just theater. Wow, So, so you're telling me you could shrink the process and increase the fidelity of assessing a candidate just by simply bringing in a second person into the interview. I feel like that's like, that saves so, so much time. It's straightforward. And, and I have a very strong opinion on why interview processes last so long. It's because people are afraid of making a hiring mistake. So if they're afraid of hiring, making a hiring mistake, what they're actually doing is trying to aggregate and diffuse that hiring decision to a group of people. They're basically hiring by committee. Um, and hiring by committee or any committee type of approach actually waters down the process. We all know this. That's like human nature in the world. You don't get the best decision. You get the most survivable decision. So if you're after the best decision, develop a process that looks for the best, fastest decision. If you're looking for the most political air cover, well, that's the exact process you would develop. That's great. Thank you. And going back to all the pinpoint and challenges we talked about so far, uh, I know we have a a great analogy that incorporate all the elements we talked about so far into a very easy to relate example. Do you want to share that? Sure. sure. So I think about, um, uh, this is an example that's very personal to me because over the last couple of years, I've developed a, a set of um, pains in my body, but you've, I've had to become an expert or at least a pseudo expert, a uh, tech exec expert on, on a couple of these things. But um, I've, had, um, I've had some back issues over the last couple of years, in particular, when um, I joined GitHub and was trying to get GitHub sold um, and working uh, lots of hours, my back started to act up. And I have been into fitness for a long time and I, no one would ever accuse me of being uh, weak um, or any of those things. And I was very confounded why my back was, was an issue. And what I had learned over the last couple of years is a couple of things, which is 
the human body is obviously a very complex system and the interactions are very, very strange and um, they can be very, very personal to an individual, but there's some, um, there's some, some macro things. One is, as an example, I have incredibly flat feet and one of my feet is, is actually not as flat as the other. One of them is over, overly flat. And that had been causing a lot of issues in my body, ankle, knee, and hip pain and misalignment. And um, I have I have to work on that. I have to strengthen my feet. I have to actually get my hips to be a little bit more mobile. I have to work on that. And the other was my glutes were not firing correctly because I had been sitting for so many hours in a day, either in, in, on a video call like this or in meetings or in airplanes. And airplanes are literally the worst thing. But my glutes, what happened is my hamstrings and my lower back, the glutes sit in between them. And my glutes stopped working appropriately. So my hamstrings and my lower back started doing more work. And with all of those things compounded, I was having major lower back pain issues, but my back was never the issue. It was a bunch of other things. And once I figured out what those were, I focused and directed on fixing those, those things and then spread out from there to make sure that the, the, the chain. So once I got my glutes working, I worked on my lower back and my hamstrings too, to make sure that they were one unit. And then I made sure that my feet, I started strengthening my feet and then my left foot in particular, because it was the one that was more flat. And I'm, you know, and I'm not done. This is going to be a lifelong thing for me, I think, at this point. But going back to our analogy earlier, which is, if you find that you are having a problem with legal, and you're in engineering, you're not having a problem with legal. You likely have a communication problem. Go find the root causes of all these. Where, which one of these things is the flat foot that you need to work on, or you know, the glute not firing type of deal. And I find this, again, going back to one of the earlier points that we made, I find this to be particularly nefarious when people are talking or organizations are talking about people. They almost always say, we got a person problem, this person, this person, this person. And there's all, there's very likely something else that's going on. And I am not discounting. Sometimes people are in the wrong roles, but there's also likely a communication problem or an expectation problem or a, a radical candor conversation with that person problem. There's a bunch of things that likely play before it's a person problem. And so you need to go as a senior leader to go do that to go have that. And a lot of people will be listening to this and say, that's great, except that my boss, or that's great, except for that person, or that's great, except for that. Well, that's literally what I'm talking about. You're now thinking that your, your organization is fine and it's all on somebody else. Well, what do you do to make that better? Do you go have that conversation? Do you go and try to improve that, that linkage? Do you go and, and try to build up some credibility or, or, or capital with that person to be able to have a very hard conversation with that. And even if you can't, you just create the best organization that you can and know that you are going to be taking some of that burden on for your organization, but your organization itself will be much um, better running and smooth. And then you try to work sideways and, and up. That's a beautiful analogy. And, and also for remote working, I think other pain people feel is actually go down to the management fundamental stuff so people can fix and uh, and then those pain may go away well the one thing that we said earlier is in, in a remote setting um, i will say one thing very specifically about remote if you ever think that you're having a miscommunication with somebody jump to video right away and if you know you mentioned earlier the worst time to introduce yourself to your neighbor is when your house is on fire i very much believe this this goes for the other organizations really, really strongly for senior leaders. If you're not having regular one-on-ones with your head of legal or your head of infrastructure, your head of sales, and you not don't have relationships over there, start it. Go build relationships. I don't care if it's work-related conversations, 
but just know that you need to have some sort of a relationship that is not a weekly exec level one uh, sync. You need to have some sort of personal connection. That's great. Jason, our, our time is winding down a little bit, but we wanted to sneak in one final question to close out this episode by learning from you. What's brought you the greatest joy as an engineering leader? I think that the thing you always get the most joy, or at least I do, but when you're a leader inside an organization is, is there's a couple of set of things. One is you see something that shouldn't have existed in the first place now exist because you were able to go do something. That's, that is incredibly gratifying. And I'll go back to GitHub Actions. There's GitHub Actions is, change, is changing the notion of how we do software delivery and a lot of those things. And it shouldn't have existed in the, the context that was GitHub pre-acquisition. And it does. And I, I'm incredibly grateful for the people that worked on that and were, were kind of bought into it and really pushed it forward. But even more than that, um, I personally get a lot of gratification out of people who um, you see succeed that you directly mentored. That for me personally is the most gratifying thing. And I've had people reach out to me during COVID now because of habits that they've developed over the last couple of years with me and said, I cannot tell you how thankful I am that we had this conversation or this thing. And I remember um, one of the folks um, I'm so very good friends with reached out to me just recently and said, I was so angry with you when we were having this conversation because I thought you were being unfair to me or not thinking about this or whatever. And I said, I cannot tell you how grateful I am. Wow. That's amazing. And I think a really powerful illustration of just some of the, like, although we're in sort of a, a challenging time universally and some of the silver linings that can happen and some of the impact that we've made on other people. Indeed. And this is why it's so beautiful being a engineering leader and being a leader in general to have the ability to impact people and have those uh, conversations and have those coaching moments and be part of that, girls. That's right. Well, thanks so much, Jason. I really enjoyed the conversation. I think we had a lot of really valuable insights covered, and I really appreciate all the uh, all the contact and examples and perspective you shared. Well, thank you both, and I uh, really enjoyed my time. If you enjoyed this episode or found any of the lessons inside of it impactful, I invite you to either share this with somebody else who might find it meaningful and or give us a rating and review. I also invite you to join us at sfelc.com. And if you're already a member of our community, thank you for tuning in. We do what we do because of you. We're working on a number of interesting projects to continue to empower engineering leaders. And so if you join us at sfelc.com, You'll be in the know with all of our community updates, content, events, and all of the new opportunities that we're creating. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being a force to evolve leadership in the tech industry.